You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley Ryan, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation in law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. This is Sarah and Josh Talk About Drones, an occasional podcast in which Sarah Baxenberg and Josh Turner talk about cutting-edge legal questions facing the unmanned aircraft systems industry. You're listening to Sarah and Josh Talk About Drones. Today, Sarah and Josh talk about drone torts, which, even if you're a lawyer, maybe doesn't sound like the most exciting topic, but specifically, we're talking about drone torts that are being explored by the Uniform Law Commission that could have a tremendous impact on the UAS industry. Uh, We're talking about this today because a committee formed by the ULC is specifically studying this issue and recently met at the end of October in Detroit. And this meeting seems like it's potentially an inflection point for the work the committee is doing and the direction that this could possibly take for the drone industry. Yeah, that's right. Um, We've talked extensively before about federal regulation in this space and about what the FAA is doing. We've talked about state regulation and what states are doing. All of that has to do with the regulation of individual conduct by government actors, essentially. The difference between that and what happened in Detroit and what's going on at the Uniform Law Commission is that this deals with individual property rights and your ability to restrict what people can do with drones around your house or around your property or having to do with taking pictures of you. And Josh, you actually attended the meeting in Detroit at the end of October, um, and I'm really interested to get into how that went um, and what you think the next steps are and the, the future is for this process. But first, I think we should back up and talk a little bit about what the Uniform Law Commission actually is. The Uniform Law Commission is something that a lot of lawyers probably haven't even heard of. I I don't think that I'd heard of it more than two or so years ago. Um, It was founded more than 100 years ago with the idea of bringing uniformity to state law. Uh, It's great to have 50 states. It's It's a great experiment in democracy. But part of the problem is if you're trying to run a business that goes across state lines, you might run into conflicting state rules and regulations or conflicting state court decisions the ULC is formed with the idea that they can pass legislation or they can they can propose legislation that states would then pass that would be uniform from state to state. And so the rules would be basically the same across state lines. So who makes up the Uniform Law Commission? So the Uniform Law Commission is a what you might call a semi-official body. It is composed of people who are nominated by state governments, individual state governments, and the process for that varies from state to state. But there are, you know, several dozen people on the Uniform Law Commission, and then each each one of these committees, these substantive committees that get set up to look at a particular issue, is composed of a number of commissioners that is drawn from that pool. And as a general matter, who are these commissioners? What type of experience and background do they tend to have? Well, they tend to, they're, they're lawyers, uh, but they tend to be either, and, and the answer to that question is it varies quite a bit. Um, they can be professors, law professors, they can be retired law professors, they can be practicing lawyers, retired practicing lawyers. One common thread, this is a volunteer sort of organization. And so you have to be willing to devote a fair amount of time to it. And so one common thread is it tends to be people who have a fair amount of time that they can devote to this kind of practice. That makes sense. So we have the Uniform Law Commission. And I guess about a year ago now, or, or a little longer, they decided that they're time uh, would be well spent by forming a committee that would look into uh, drone tort issues. Do you know how that came about? Sure. The The Uniform Law Commission, the way it works is they have a what's called a scope and program committee. And the scope and program committee reviews these sort of new 
areas of law or new areas of technology that might have an impact on law and decides, you know, is this something that that would benefit from having uniform state law? And, and when they decide that it does, they form a committee, sometimes a study committee to look and answer that question. Um, and then when they decide that that actually would benefit from state law, they form a drafting committee, which is what the drone tort law committee is, um, to actually put together uh, state law that would be promoted in each one of the states with the goal of having uniform adoption. I think what's interesting in this case is that, and I mean, probably is generally the case when they form this type of committee, but ULC was not the first entity to start thinking about this, like what the property rights are when it comes to drone flight. I mean, most notably, we had the Singer case that that came down before this committee was even formed. And there, the city of Newton had passed an ordinance that prohibited all um, drone overflights without express permission of the property owner. So you already had local governments thinking about these property rights issues. And you also had had uh, the NTIA's multi-stakeholder process on privacy and UAS issues. So this conversation has been going on on a lot of different fronts by the time the ULC decided to get involved. Yeah. And in fact, that's probably not a coincidence, right? One of the reasons that the ULC decided to get involved is that there is the potential of all of this various different contrary guidance coming out from different areas of state and local governments. And it's because of that, that the ULC sees benefit to getting involved here and trying to draft up something that would be uniform. So back in 2017, then the ULC formed the Committee on Drone Tort Law. Um, what has the committee been up to up until uh, this meeting uh, last week? Well, um, I will say up until this meeting last week, the folks in the drone industry and, and people who are users of drones, uh, drone operators, were a little bit alarmed about the way the committee was headed uh, because the committee had been proposing a line in the sky, essentially a 200 foot line in the sky below which it would have been a per se tort for you to fly your drone. And if you had flown your drone below 200 feet without the express permission of the property owner, you would have been liable to that property owner for some sort of damages. There were narrow exceptions that had been written into that for certain kinds of drone use. But the definite feeling amongst the industry was if this proposal had been adopted, it would have really restricted the use of drones in a very dramatic way that would have really altered the way in which the industry is going to develop. So given that, when did the industry first get involved in this process? The industry first got involved in this process uh, late last year, early this year. And it was really, I mean, one thing about the ULC is it has a fairly transparent process as long as you know that it is happening. But it's not necessarily at the top of mind of any of the lawyers in Washington who are thinking about drone regulation or any of the drone operators anywhere in the country. And so part of the problem that we had as an industry was we frankly just didn't know that this was going on before sort of late last year. Once it became clear that this was something that was moving forward and that there was this effort to adopt a uniform uh, drone tort law, uh, industry took it very seriously, you know, participated in the meetings to the extent that we're uh, allowed to do so. There's And how are is the industry able to participate if you aren't a commissioner? So the each of the committees has observers, and that's an official status that you get as an observer, and you can come to the meetings and you can participate in the meetings. Um, you can't vote, uh, but you can provide your comments and your perspective on the ways in which the committee could be helpful or could be harmful. And that's not limited to industry. There are other stakeholders that can come to the table and participate as observers as well. And so we've been doing that in a formal way um, all through 2018 and even, I think, late 2017. 
The interesting way that this has unfolded is that for quite a while, and we'll obviously get into what happened at the Detroit meeting, but for the past year, it kind of felt like the industry got involved a little bit too late. By the time they knew this was happening, the committee had already had a draft of this proposal that had this 200-foot line in the sky under which it would be a per se tort to enter into the airspace above a private property owner's property. And it seemed like it was something that they weren't going to budge on. They held several, um, they held an in-person meeting, they held phone calls, and each time member these observers, members of the industry tried to voice their concerns, and it, it seemed like that was already fairly set in stone for the committee, and that was an aspect that was not going to change. Yeah, that was a little bit frustrating, I think, from the perspective of drone operators, was the feeling that the committee wasn't really listening to the concerns that we had about uh, how restrictive this would be and about how much of a problem it would be for the development of the industry and about how much of a radical change this would be in the way that the law actually works right now. So how does aerial trespass work, uh, putting drones and the committee's work aside? Sure. Um, it, and this is an area of law that that exists currently. There is an aerial trespass tort. Um, it's It's in the restatement of torts right now. You can go look it up. And, and right now it has developed essentially with both components of trespass and components of nuisance. And the idea there is that an aerial trespass is different in kind from a trespass on physical land. And as a result, you're not going to hold someone liable for simply trespassing on physical land. You also have to have a damage component or a harm component that goes along with it. And the way in which that's been articulated in the restatement is that there's a substantial interference with the use of land. And so an aerial trespass is both going across someone's land and substantially interfering with the use of land. So the idea of a per se tort that just flying in certain airspace in and of itself creates an actionable tort is a huge digression from where the law is. That's what that's certainly my view of it. Uh, I think there are other folks who would disagree and who would say that uh, a Supreme Court case called Cosby, which we've written about and talked about, uh, establishes this idea that there is control over the quote-unquote immediate reaches of land. Now, the Supreme Court said that in passing, and the way in which that has developed is into this aerial trespass idea. But I think there are a lot of people on the committee who pointed back to that and said, look, there's some envelope of air around your property that should be treated the same way that you would treat the physical land of your property and should be subject to the right of exclusion even without any kind of damage or harm to your use of the property. But I think when people um, cite Cosby for that proposition, they are overlooking important parts of the case, right? They're overlooking first the fact that the Supreme Court acknowledged there that what we understand to be our property rights evolves as technology changes. So there was previously this thought that your property rights extended all the way up to the cosmos, to the stars, and that was no longer going to be the case um, in the era of modern manned aircraft. And so I think that's a big thing that um, people like to overlook when they talk about Cosby. And then also the holding, right, that ultimately the flights that were problematic in that case um, were problematic specifically because they interfered with use and enjoyment of the land. No, I think that's exactly right. And if you go back to Cosby and you say, I think the most important holding in Cosby is this idea that you mentioned that property rights do evolve and that you can't have this sort of idea that there's this fixed conception of property that will always be the case, because if you do, it blocks the development of technology. And you're also exactly right that the holding that people refer to, this immediate reaches holding that everyone talks about, really is dicta in that case, because the ultimate 
holding of the case depended on the fact that there were damages that were caused by these flights. The chickens in this guy's chicken farm were killed. Um, and that's why Cosby and the torts that developed from Cosby developed the way that they did. But that's an area of, of some disagreement. And, and there remain uh, a lot of people who sort of passionately say um, there should be, quote unquote, immediate reaches, however you define that, that are uh, subject to you know your ability to block anyone from coming in. So we have this ULC committee. They had formed this proposal and the industry did what it could to speak out against that, both as uh, public observers and by submitting uh, various letters in opposition to the proposals. Uh, all of this was unfolding over the past year, but it was looking like this was the approach the committee wanted to take. And that would be that. It's the approach that they submitted to the full commission at a meeting uh, in July, the annual meeting of the Uniform Law Commission. It wasn't to be acted on at that time by the commission or adopted. It was just essentially kind of an update that the committee presented to the full commission and said, hey, this is what we're working on and what we're thinking of doing. And so... That brings us to the meeting that the committee held in Detroit last month. Yeah, and it, it it was something that we were very concerned about. And as you said, we submitted a bunch of advocacy on this point, you know, letters. Uh, we actually proposed our own red line of the draft that the committee had put together and said, look, here's a better way to go about it. Um, but we weren't optimistic going into Detroit because it, it seemed like the, the committee's direction was pretty fixed. Um, so we're very encouraged by what happened in Detroit, which is that the committee took very seriously the concerns that had been raised by a variety of stakeholders, uh, you know, the industry, the letter that that uh, we helped to draft. And then there were a number of other letters that were submitted by other folks in industry that pointed out the problems with this per se approach. And so when we got to Detroit, almost immediately, there was a recognition that the 200 foot line in the sky was not going to work and that that needed to be revisited and probably abandoned. There was then, uh, you know, it was a, a two and a half day meeting or it was scheduled for two and a half days. We spent about a day and a half talking about whether or not that per se tort should remain part of the proposal. And ultimately, the committee decided to adopt a slightly different framework, or I suppose a very different framework. The framework that the committee decided to move forward with is based more on the existing aerial trespass tort and requires substantial interference with the use of land in order to find uh, that there has been a tort committed. So that does sound like a big difference. Um, and that's something that was adopted by the committee and is a sure thing. So the way that this committee process works, and you alluded to this, there is essentially a two-year process. They do a, a sort of midpoint review where they go to the, the full commission. That happened this past summer. So the proposal, the ultimate proposal, will be presented to the full commission in Anchorage, Alaska next summer. So we still have eight or nine months before uh, we have the final proposal, and that's voted on by the ULC, the full ULC. I'm certainly encouraged by the direction that the committee has decided to take, but we don't have a new draft yet. That won't happen for another couple of months. We don't know specifically what the various factors the commission is going to use to define what substantial interference means are. We have a rough draft that the associate reporter for the committee put together. There are currently nine factors that have to do with things like how high was the aircraft, how far did the aircraft fly, how much property did it transit over. And does the idea of using different enumerated factors like that, does that represent a deviation from how aerial trespass tends to work? 
it is a change in the way in which aerial trespass has traditionally operated. Aerial trespass, if you go back to the restatement, of course, as with any tort, has developed through case law. And there is case law that you can point to that shows what that kind of substantial interference would be. But here, where you're talking about taking that and codifying it in state law and saying this is what a drone tort is, and here are the several factors that a court should think about when it's determining whether or not a drone tort has occurred, that is new. And I think one of the ways in which we were able to get the committee to think about this as a potential way forward was as stakeholders acknowledging that there are ways in which drones certainly can interfere with the use of property that are different from the way that other aircraft interfere with the use of property. And so I think, you know, a lot of the discussion on this has to do with these sort of edge cases like, what if a drone flies over your property at three feet? Or what if a drone flies over your property at five feet? You know, shouldn't you be able to, to tell someone they can't do that? And I think one of the things that that we were talking about at the committee was, you know, isn't there a way to write the substantial interference factors in such a way that you capture those edge cases, right? Because I think everyone would agree that if you have drones flying overhead, or not even overhead, but if you have drones flying over your property at lower than the height of a, of a human head, that might be dangerous and it might substantially interfere with your use of land. So I think there's a willingness on the part of industry and on the part of the stakeholders that participated in the proceeding um, to adopt factors that are really tied to the real world and sort of acknowledge that there are some uses for this technology that really are going to be problematic for property owners and that those are the kinds of things that we should take off the table and say, you know, you can't do that. But at the same time, we shouldn't be way too prescriptive and say, we're going to give you control over 80 feet or 100 feet or 200 feet and forbid drone flights in that envelope, because to do that is going to be really uh, detrimental to the development of the industry. So we've got this good progress on the per se aerial tort, but that wasn't the only tort that the committee was thinking about. Can we talk a little bit about uh, the other aspects of uh, personal rights that the committee was interested in. Right. One of the other things that the committee was very interested in is privacy. And they had proposed as part of their proposal, uh, a separate tort that would be acquisition of images. And they they had talked about acquisition of images depicting, quote unquote, private facts, where that was done in a offensive manner, in a highly offensive manner. And there was a lot of discussion at the committee in Detroit about what are private facts? Because that is a term that is not well understood. Uh, it isn't really a term of art that everyone uses. And what is highly offensive? What are the mechanisms by which something you know can be acquired that is highly offensive as opposed to non-highly offensive? And I think there was a, a widespread recognition on the committee that you don't want to make things more restrictive for drones than they are for any other instrumentality. So you're not trying to cover more behavior you're just trying to make sure that if someone uses a drone to capture things that people would consider to be things they don't want to have captured, right, places where they have a reasonable expectation of privacy, that there is some sort of tort that gets at that. And the fact that you're using a drone to capture that doesn't immunize you from liability. I think there was also a recognition on the committee that the, the prior framework for that didn't do what they wanted it to do. And so that's another area where they're going to revisit what they had done before and try and come up with something that's a little bit better, although it's not as clear exactly what they're going to do on that front. That's something that I think is still a little bit more up in the air, if you forgive the pun. <laughs> Was there ever any discussion at the meeting about the fact that this might not be the right time for 
drone tort law that's specifically related to privacy, given the mandate in the FAA reauthorization bill um, for the Comptroller General to conduct an in-depth study on existing state and federal privacy law and see um, what the gaps are and what the interests are and figure out a way forward um, or submit a report, at least, on those issues. Well, and, and one of the points that I think was talked about quite a bit at the committee is what are the concerns that should be the committee's focus? What are the things that are real threats and where are the areas where it's just not that big a deal and the committee shouldn't be doing anything right now? Certainly, the FAA reauthorization was something that we talked about in a, in a fair amount of detail. And this you know, privacy report that the FAA Reauthorization Act has uh, ordered was another of those topics that came up. I think the Drone Tort Committee is in the process of drafting a uniform law. And at this point, I think it's unlikely that they won't draft something. Um, I think they've recognized and feel the need to act. And as a result, what is really going to be the game in the next few months is seeing where that action is going to come. Is it going to be possible to persuade them that it's premature to act on privacy? I think that's probably unlikely. I think everyone in the room recognized that this technology has the ability to impact people's privacy and to impact people's property. Um, and there's a, a strong recognition by the folks in the room that they have a responsibility to try and do something about that. They recognize that there are other mechanisms in government that are taking a look at it too, but I don't think that there's a realistic chance that they're going to say, well, because those other folks are doing something, we don't have to. I think they view themselves as having a responsibility to take an action here and to try and address it in the best way that they can. So it looks like things are really moving in a positive direction with respect to the work the committee is doing. I guess my question for you, having been in the meeting and been a part of this advocacy for the past year, is why do you think the industry's advocacy is beginning to work? Why is it successful now? Well, I think part of it is that we have a strong and coordinated story to tell. I mean, it is very, very concerning to us. Uh, and to, I think it should be to anyone who operates in this space, this idea that you would have a per se tort that would restrict your operations to above 200 feet. I think as, a, as just a matter of practicality, that's not workable. I think as a matter of law, there's a very strong argument that that's also not permissible. Um, you know, and, and this was a strongly debated and, and heavily fought over topic at the committee. But certainly, I believe that the FAA has the ability to regulate the navigable airspace and that the navigable airspace extends well below 200 feet um, and, and probably extends all the way down to the tops of the blades of grass. Now, that doesn't mean that you have the unlimited right to do whatever you want with your drone, right? In the same way that you couldn't smash your drone into the side of a building and say the building was in my way, um, you can't do whatever you want with respect to other uses of the property. And I think that's one of the things that this substantial interference concept ideally will recognize that while you have a right of navigation, that right of navigation is limited and can't impinge on and infringe on the, um, the uses of the property. But I think because of, of both the practical story and the legal story that we were able to tell, I think it's something that has really caught the ULC's attention. The one other thing I think I would say is the ULC has a strong interest in making sure that the work that it does actually is uniform and is passable, passable in the sense of can be passed by state legislatures. It's no good for the ULC if they adopt something that state legislatures look at and say, man, we're not interested or that doesn't strike the right balance. So the ULC has a strong interest in getting it right and getting it right in the sense that state legislators are going to look at that and say, yes, this is something that we want to adopt. 
if there's strong pushback from stakeholders, strong pushback from the industry, you know, the ULC doesn't always, but often looks at that and says, well, that's going to make it really hard for us to enact the thing that we're proposing. And so maybe we should take another look at it. And I think to the ULC's credit, at least so far, that process is working well here. There has been a recognition that what they had proposed before was unworkable and impractical and potentially illegal, and that as a result, it was not passable. And now they're looking for a way to move forward that that would be more workable. And what's the broader takeaway of that, of how this process has unfolded for advocates in this industry? Well, I think one of the things to take away from that is that you need to be coordinated and you need to have a strong and united voice. And I think uh, we've done a nice job of getting everyone sort of rowing in the same direction on this. Uh, it doesn't hurt in this case that everyone basically had the same interest, uh, which was, you know, we want to make sure that this industry develops and we want to make sure that there are strong uniform laws that allow the industry to develop in the right way. But I think, you know, the, the other takeaway that I would have from this process is, you know, there are a lot of different ways in which technology like this can be regulated. And, you know, you think about the federal side, you think about the state side, you know, we've been focused on state and local regulation for years. You don't necessarily think about things like the restatement of torts or the Uniform Law Commission or things like that. But those are areas that can have just as big an impact on this technology as anything that happens at the federal level. And so I guess the takeaway that I would have from this is, you know, if you're developing, if you're in the the industry where these new technologies are being developed, you can't just focus on one kind of regulation or one kind of law. You have to have a very, very broad view of what the playing field is for the kinds of things that could impact your livelihood and the development of your industry. And you can't restrict your, you can't put any blinders on and think, oh, we're just going to take care of this by going to the FAA, or we're just going to take care of this by going to the state legislatures. You've got to be really aware of what's happening at a lot of different levels. This has been Sarah and Josh Talk About Drones. Thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast, brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley Rhine LLP. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to wileyconnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create, and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.